2: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher. And I'm very pleased to have with me today both of the authors of the book titled The Edwin Fox, How an Ordinary Sailing Ship Connected the World in the Age of Globalization, 1850 to 1914. The book has just come out by the time you're hearing this from the University of North Carolina Press in 2023. And it is a fascinating work by Dr. Boyd Cothran and Dr. Adrian Schubert that helps us understand this massive global history in really a lot of senses how we've ended up with the global world we have today through the lens, through the history of a particular ship, which is a really cool historical conceit, I have to say, from a methodological point of view. And it's quite stunning just how many places this particular ship ends up with and how many aspects of globalization it really connects for us. So, Boyd and Adrian, thank you so much for being with us to tell us all about the Edwin Fox.
3: Thank you, Miranda.
1: Thank you, Miranda.
2: Before we dive into the ship, though, would you mind each introducing yourselves a little bit and then maybe giving us the backstory of why you decided to write the book and do it together?
1: Sure. Uh, I'll, I'll start with that. Uh, my name is Boyd Cawthorne. I'm an associate professor of history at York University in uh, Toronto, Canada. Um, and my historical training was initially in uh, U.S. history, uh, 19th century and U.S. indigenous history. Um, And my early work was in that. Uh, But more recently, my work has gone more global. Um, And um, I've both written and edited books on topics such as uh, global cultural histories of warfare, uh, indigenous peoples and preserved spaces of nature, uh, and now the history of globalization.
3: And I'm Adrian Schubert. I'm an emeritus professor in the Department of History at York University. Uh, I'm a historian of modern Europe, uh, primarily uh, modern Spain. I've written uh, on the labor movement in Spain in the 19th and 20th centuries, a social and economic history of bullfighting. I've written a biography of a major 19th century military political figure. And uh, this book is, uh, for both of us, uh, really quite quite a departure and it really came about as a total accident. In March of 2017, uh, my partner and I are on holiday in New Zealand and towards the end of the trip, we found ourselves in Picton, which is a small town of about 5,000 people on the north shore of the South Island. It's where the ferry from Wellington arrives. And uh, the, perhaps the main site in Picton is a small but very wonderfully cared for museum devoted to this ship the Edwin Fox and the centerpiece is the are the remains of the ship itself as i said the museum's quite small and uh, it starts with a video which tells the life of the ship and as i was watching the video i was getting more and more excited and as soon as it ended i turned to my partner and said if it hasn't been done yet there's a book here and it turned out it hadn't and This, to me, seemed like one of those ideas. I wasn't quite clear if it was brilliant or totally off the wall. So when I got back to Toronto, I started uh, asking colleagues what they thought of it. And their unanimous response was, this is a really cool idea. Uh, And Boyd uh, agreed with that, but went one further and said, "Uh, can I do it with you? So we decided we would put our heads together. We uh, applied for a grant, got one, and uh, set to work. And here we are.
2: Wow. Well, that's a fun origin story. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, Before we dive into the book, I think by the end of this, uh, listeners will have quite a good idea of why you are so excited uh, watching that video in the museum. But I admit that it doesn't really start that way because you talk about the ship at the very beginning being, quote, exceptional for being unexceptional, which on the face of it, doesn't sound that exciting. Um, Further, you talk, quote, in some ways, the ship was old fashioned even before the keel was laid down. However, you then unpack these statements and reveal to anyone with a glimmer of historical interest um, that the ship is very much a book. So can you walk us through kind of how the ship is exceptional for being unexceptional and these sorts of quotes that you start off with? Maybe, Boyd, you can start us off?
1: Sure, I'd be glad to. I mean, so the, so the Edward Fox, uh, it's we say it's exceptional for being unexceptional and that it was old-fashioned even before its keel was laid down. Um, and we mean that in kind of in, in two ways. I mean, one way is that the ship was... Uh, so the ship was built in Calcutta in 1853, um, and it was built on the blackwall frigate design. Um, which in some ways, we can think of as kind of the second generation of ships to kind of service the world of commerce that the East India Company created. Um, and in this way, the ship was um it was faster than the old East India men, um which were, Designed heavily for defense um, to defense against piracy and and, and other forms of attack, and you know you can even see this that that some of the uh, old East Indian men were uh, drafted as man of war uh, in the wars against France. Um, so this ship was was one that was designed entirely for commerce, um, and it was designed for trade. It, it had a, a kind of a large rounded sides, um, large cargo. Um, it was it was it was relatively large um, in historical uh, terms, um, but it wasn't yet a particularly fast ship like the clippers that w- were coming on the scene at about the same time in the 1850s um which were designed really to maximize speed and to get uh, shipments of tea um to to market uh, from the very beginning so it it it, it kind of uh, uh, was was of that kind of 1840s and 1850s uh, design um but it's coming about also at this time when steamships are starting to emerge and the future of commerce is becoming increasingly organized around uh, steam powered um, movement um, through massive infrastructural uh, projects like the Suez Canal that are, are going to shorten distances for trade and are going to really eclipse this older era. So in a lot of ways, the Edwin Fox, um, when it's built in 1853, is, is at this kind of focal point or this, uh, this hinge in, 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 in history. Um, and in that way, it's, it was sort of old fashioned. It wasn't viewing, it wasn't, wasn't, didn't have its eye on the future of, of global trade, uh, but was sort of still in the midst of, of a transition period. Um, now, it was exceptional for being unexceptional. I think that's the more historically profound um, aspect of this ship. Um, and in that, what we mean is that the Edwin Fox has the remarkable uh, characteristic of being average average in almost every way, you know, an average sized ship um doing the workaday stuff of trade and commerce in the middle of the 19th century. And you know, as historians uh, well know, it's uh it's quite hard to find the the absolute average uh Thing, an average person, an average ship, and to find the historical documentation that would support uh, writing a book about about that. And so when when we when we came across the Edwin Fox, one of the things that made it just truly a remarkable uh, subject for for an extended treatment like this was that it represented the everyday ship, the workaday ship that made globalization in the in the latter half of the nineteenth century possible. And we thought that it was just a fantastic. Uh, vehicle, if you will, for telling the story of globalization as it unfolded uh, in this truly pivotal and central era in world history between
3: 1850 and
2: 1914. Um, Brilliant. Thank you for unpacking those for us. Adrian, is there anything you'd like to add?
3: Yeah, just to uh, extend uh, the point about uh, being average. Uh, On some of the routes that it sailed, uh, for example, uh, uh, from the UK to New Zealand, it did the the voyage in the exact average time of the voyage uh, of that voyage. So it it said its averageness was really quite all-embracing. Yeah.
2: What a what a stunning find from that historical perspective. So, really, a great place to start. Um, Boyd, you mentioned it briefly. Would you mind telling us a bit more about kind of how the ship was built, what materials were used, what it was initially intended for?
1: Sure, absolutely. So, the ship was built uh, by Thomas Reeves um, in Calcutta, and we can think of Thomas Reeves uh, as he was a uh, he was part of that generation of shipbuilders who came out to India um, in the 1820s um, and 1830s uh, in the aftermath of the end of the East India Company's uh, complete monopoly on trade out there to take advantage of the opportunities for building ships, servicing ships um, in the Far East. Um, Now, he had a sh- a ship work uh, a, a a dock um along the Hooghly river uh, across from uh, the settlement of calcutta and there he built ships for uh for for many years. This particular ship, the edwin fox um was an exceptionally well made ship. It was constructed out of teak and uh, now this teak came from uh, burma um and it had been uh, recently opened up the, the, the areas of teak um, in Burma had recently been opened up as a result of the Second Burmese War. Now, teak is one of those kind of um, materials that, that many people have probably heard of, but they don't appreciate fully its, its uh, unique uh, value, its unique characteristics. Um, teak is uh, incredibly durable, uh, especially when in contact with water. Um, so it's it's the ideal uh, material for building ships. Um, it it has natural resistance to uh, to to see uh, to see um, uh, devouring um, worms that will eat up the wood of of other ships. Um, now the, the 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 hard side or the downside to it is teak is also extremely slow growing and rare and hard to find. And so uh, in order to kind of uh, Get enough wood, especially for, for long and, and large pieces to build a ship of this size, um, you had to find some very old growth uh, teak wood. And that's, you know, the, the, the British were quickly devouring uh, all the teak supplies out there. Um, and the Edwin Fox kind of be, uh, comes into existence uh, right at the, the heyday of teak shipbuilding. The ship itself was also exceptionally well constructed um, by Bengali craftsmen who show uh, in every aspect of of design and construction of the ship an extremely high level of skill. Um, the ship also came uh, had a lot of metal in it, um, as ships of that era did. Um, both w- uh, internal metal uh, uh, to kind of for bracings and supports within the ship to to uh, hold hold it together and be able to carry its large loads of of trade and cargo, um, and also in uh, in in months metal sheeting along the, the the hull of the ship in order to protect it and, uh, and give it further uh, durability uh, in, in in the waters, especially in the warm waters of the uh, equatorial regions. Now the ship itself was intended uh for long distance trade. Uh you know this is the kind of uh in its design it was envisioning that it would it would it would participate in what was called the East India trade. Um bringing uh, Products uh, and 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 raw material from from India or from Southeast China uh, back to Britain, and then uh, transporting from the UK finished products um, as well as as beer, uh, foodstuffs, and and other kinds of supplies, as well as soldiers, uh, weapons, and 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 these kinds of things that were necessary for the imperial project. Um, so so the ship was. Uh, built and intended for the continuation of that trade that had been going on since the 1830s, and 1840s, uh, a period of evolving free trade uh, in which British uh, imperialism and, and economic uh, influence were expanding hand in hand. And the Edwin Fox was designed to be the workhorse for this emerging global economy.
2: That's very helpful to understand kind of what thinking was going into its creation. Adrian, is there anything you'd like to add about the Creation, I suppose, of the ship?
3: No, I think uh, Boyd got it all.
2: Fair enough. Um, Turning to you then, Adrian, could you tell us about? Obviously, I'm having difficulty as the interviewer, right? Going, what are all of all the things that the ship is involved in? How can I possibly cover all of them? And I think I have to admit I'm not going to be able to. Um, But I would like to cover kind of some of the main things that the ship helps us. Um, illuminate from the global trade in various things. And um, unfortunately, but of course, accurately, I think one of the ones we need to start with is um, the ship's involvement in the slave trade. And given the timing, uh, it's important to note that this was after the slave trade was formally abolished. And yet, as you both document in the book, that doesn't really mean it Ends when we're talking about the involvement of these kinds of ships. So how was the Edwin Fox involved in the slave trade even after it stopped formally existing?
3: Well, I guess the best way to put it is that the Edwin Fox became involved in the, the replacement for the slave trade. So as people will know, in 1806, the British abolished the trade and began to interdict it, the transatlantic slave trade. And in 1833, they abolished it within their empire. Uh, but there was still a need uh, within the British Empire and in other places, uh, particularly Cuba, which was a Spanish colony, and Spain had not abolished slavery yet, for uh, forced labor of some kind, cheap labor to replace Slave labor; there was uh, a slave trade. Uh, sort of uh, clandestine slave trade continued after the the British abolition, but uh, it wasn't uh, substantial enough to feed the need uh, for labor, particularly in Cuba, which was uh, which was the center of the glo- of global sugar production in the nineteenth century and uh, came to account for something like forty percent of all um, all global sh- uh, Uh, sugar production. So uh, the British, for their colonies in the Caribbean and also Mauritius, uh, the Spaniards, or actually more accurately, Cuban planters, not Spanish authorities, uh, Cuban planters, uh, and also uh, to a lesser extent, uh, people in Peru who are involved in the guano trade, started looking around for alternative sources of cheap and uh, unfree labor. And what they came up with was uh, importing indentured laborers uh, from China and India. The British turned to India because it was part of their empire uh, for uh, unfree labor for Mauritius and their colonies in the, in the Caribbean. Indeed, they experimented with the first uh, shipload of indentured Indians. in 1807, the year after they abolished the slave trade. Uh, The Spaniards, uh, driven by by, uh, Cuban planters and their need for uh, labor at a time when uh, sugar production was expanding greatly, turned to China. And they took advantage of the fact that there was a pre-existing history of people from southeastern China Emigrating uh, for for work uh, within what the Chinese called the, the Hanjian Southeast Asia. So uh, the in 1857 uh, we sort of jumped four years from the Edwin Fox's first voyage. It spent uh, uh, almost three years actually uh, serving as a troop ship in the Crimean War. But in November 1857, it's contracted to carry a load of indentured Chinese. Uh, from uh, uh, what was then known as, as SWATO uh, to, to Havana, and its voyage lasts 130 days, with one short stop in um, in Cape Town to take on supplies. Uh, 309 uh, indentured Chinese laborers boarded the ship. 269 of them uh, arrived alive. So uh, and. This is the main involvement of of the ship in the kind of aftermath of, of the abolition slave trade, of abolition of the slave trade. It uh, later on is involved has another voyage in which it, it takes uh, uh, a load of uh, indentured Indians who had finished their indenture uh, in Mauritius back back to India. So th- that that's really it. The uh, the voyage. Uh, the 130-day voyage was typical for uh, the 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 run from from China to uh, to Cuba. The death rate of about 12% was typical for the death rate uh, on this run. the 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 death rate was about the same as the uh, transatlantic slave trade, although. Uh, this this voyage also took about uh, twice as long as the uh, transatlantic slave voyages took.
2: Wow, Thank you for um briefly outlining those for us. Boyd, is there anything you'd like to add?
1: Um. I think just maybe uh two quick points that I, I would want to add to, to the discussion of of of, of coolitude and, and of the coolie trade. Um I mean I think the first is so one thing something Adrian already uh pointed out, but I, I think it's worth emphasizing is just that, you know, the, the ending of of the of the or the the interdiction of the slave trade by the British uh in the early nineteenth uh, century uh, resulted in a in a large um Scramble for labor uh, globally, and that this is part of the 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 story of the of kind of the second half of the of the 19th century is going to be one of massive, uh, you know, voluntary and involuntary migrations, um, the movement of peoples to try to satisfy this uh, this labor system that had existed uh, and had created the global economy as we knew it, and that th- in in this way, um, the movement of Chinese coolies was was part of a of a large reordering of labor. Uh, around the world um and then the second thing is, is something that we 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 do talk about um quite a bit in in that in that chapter, which is also um the resistance that the chinese themselves uh, 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 took the agency that they had in this system um agency throughout the system that was a very uneven and system and one that was riddled with uh with uh, with abductions and chicanery of all kinds captains who would who would uh, uh, tell the 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 cargo that they were going to San Francisco and instead be actually taking them to the Guano Islands, um, but that 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 many of these uh, Chinese laborers, um, you know, they took their lives into their own hands, and and we recount the the the, the heroic acts of resistance and of you know what have were termed uh, mutinies, but might also be re-termed as uprisings um, on these coolie ships. And the Edwin Fox ship uh, did not uh, have a, a mutiny that occurred on it. But I think in talking about that, we need to include um, this, th- th- that th- those historical stories of, of these um, these people resisting their exploitation.
3: Hmm. Both very important points. Thanks for adding them. a point I made briefly earlier. And that is in the in the case of Cuba, which is where the Edwin Fox uh, took the indentured Chinese, the demand for uh, indentured labor came from the planters and really uh, Spanish imperial authorities found themselves it it caused them a problem because of the way they conceived of of Cuba as a biracial society and a slave society that having people who were neither black nor white and uh, nor Christian, and as they would put it uh, kind of uh, threw a wrench into their conception of what their colony should look like. And particularly at a time when they feared and, and with good reason, the designs of the United States on Cuba and this, this point about uh, things being driven by the periphery, not the imperial center, is one that we we come back to in uh, other sections of the book, and so I think I've just put it out there for now.
2: Absolutely, no. Thank you for adding that in. I'd love to um, ask you to tell us a bit about another very long set of voyages um, that are also sort of in this interesting idea of kind of freedom of movement, Uh, you know, maybe not so much. Uh, Perhaps, Boyd, you could help us understand why there were headlines in British papers about who was on the Edwin Fox for a particular journey it made from Britain to Western Australia?
1: Uh, Yeah, absolutely. So, so yeah, um, that... Uh, the 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 ambiguity or the not ambiguity but the um the the complexity of freedom is, is I think highlighted in in these two chapters chapters two and chapter three of the book which uh, we call um the the voyages of unfreedom for of the Edwin Fox so if uh, and these were very long voyages like you said you know the 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 coolie voyage. Um, going from uh, from China to uh, Cuba—that's a, a very far distance—and then this one from um, from the UK to Western Australia, um, just about as far as human beings can travel <laughs> on the planet Earth. Um, and this was uh, this was uh, directly following the Cuba trip. Uh, after Cuba, um, after they dropped off the the indentured laborers there, the Edwin Fox took a load of sugar um, from Cuba um, to to. To the UK. Um, and then it was commissioned to uh, immediately commission, uh, recommissioned to carry um, a, a cargo of convicts from um, the UK to um, the relatively new uh, penal colony of Western Australia. And on this voyage in 1858, the Edwin Fox uh, carried uh, 280. Um, Uh, 280 um, convicts um, who had been sentenced to transportation um, as well as about 82 other passengers and, and that included about 30 um, pensioner guards who were um, uh, former veterans of um, of, the, of the British Army um, who uh, had signed on to be guards on the on the voyage and then were, would also serve as guards upon their arrival uh, in Western Australia um, their wives, their children um, as well as um, some other passengers in the crew itself. So this convict, Voyage again, like the like the, the indentured labor uh, trade, we, we have to understand this is part of a global system of um of labor reorganization. Um you, you know, I think the story of convicts to Australia has oftentimes been understood as a story about um, the settlement of Australia, but but when we put into a larger global frame, we really realize that um that that convicts and convictism was was a was a much larger um, global process uh, of establishing penal colonies um, that persisted throughout uh, the you know beginning in the 18th century, throughout the 19th century, and well into the 20th century, um, and that these penal colonies were a vital part of the story of globalization as it unfolded um, in the late 19th century. So uh, these convicts, of course, um, were a diverse group of people um, and many of them had been uh, especially those who were so-called lifers those who were uh who were set off to um to spend the rest of their life in 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 uh in australia um many of them had had committed rather um horrendous crimes um murder and rape um some of them committed truly shocking crimes such as uh thomas johnson and joseph william simpson um who were uh who were convicted of raping a young girl, um, or uh, people like James Gary, um, who uh, attempted to murder his wife and was um, she was only saved by uh, a a border who was living in their in their room and in their house. Um, so so many of people had committed truly shocking crimes. Some were soldiers who um, deserted, uh, you know, who were caught des- uh, deserting their posts or or, or otherwise um, AWOL, um, or who had struck their officers, their commanding officers. Um, many of them were uh, committed. Many of them had committed rather minor property crimes, uh, and property crimes were, were of course, uh, pretty severely punished um, in, in British law at the time. Um, an example of this would be William Messenger, who was the youngest uh, convict on the voyage, a, a, a boy uh, who had been com- convicted and sentenced to a transport at the age of 14 uh, for breaking into a local church and, and, um, and defiling uh, the, the, the altar and um, stealing some, some, some papers from the, from the church and was sentenced to, uh, to um, transport to Australia. But the Edwin Fox captured headlines because of a series of truly uh, notable convicts. And I'll, I'll give you just um, three examples of, of, of these guys. Um, One was William James Robson, um, and he was a clerk in the office of the Crystal Palace Company, which was a holding company for the huge cast iron and glass plate exhibition structure that was built in Hyde Park to house Prince Albert's um, Great Expedition Exhibition and robson um he had uh joined the company as a as a clerk um and within that position he began to um to actually embezzle uh quite a bit of money um and he was able to uh embezzle uh money and he used that money to um to uh to live a very extravagant life um and when he was finally captured uh and uh, and accused of, of the embezzlement it, it it made headline news um not least because he had actually had fled the country and was there was a, a, a manhunt for him across the continent. He was eventually um, arrested in Copenhagen uh, and brought back to England. Um, and he was sentenced to 14 years of transportation for um, his embezzlement. And, and it, was, it was big news. It was big headline news uh, in London. Another example was Leopold Redpath, who actually knew Robinson. They had actually worked together at the Peninsular uh, Oriental Company and at the Brighton Railroad Railway company, but um, Redpath had f- come into the uh, uh, into the purview of, of the law because um, he became the register of shares and the transfer of stock for the Great Northern Railroad com- Company, and in that position he actually embezzled tens of thousands of do- of, of pounds. Um, which was a tremendous was a, a, a fortune at the time, um, and he used it to to uh, to live a very extravagant life as well. Um, even supposedly outbidding Emperor Napoleon III for a silver uh, antique model of um, of Leda and the Swan uh, at a, at a famous public auction. Um, and when his crimes were uh, were were discovered, he was also um, uh, in the news and, and very, uh, the very um, the, the trial was followed in great detail but perhaps the the most famous uh convicts um to 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 go aboard the edwin fox in 1858 were george burgess and william george tester um and these two guys were uh behind um one of the most daring um uh, crimes of of the time, and it made big headline news. And it was a uh, an attempt to steal over two hundred pounds of gold bullion, uh, worth more than one point five million dollars in today's money, um, which was heavily guarded uh, on a. It was a, going by railroad, and then it was going by ferry across the um, across the, the British Channel. Um, so uh, in this uh, in this amazing um, kind of caper story that that captured the attention of of the of newspaper and journalists at the time, um, they uh, it was a tra- it was a train robbery and it, it, it really um, became a uh, a sensation in the news um, and and all the headlines when the Evelyn Fox was leaving on this voyage were were about about these men um, and the notorious case of of, of these um, gold robbers actually um, became the basis for um, the, uh, for the Michael Crichton novel, The Great Train Robbery, which was published, I think, in 1975, um, as well as the subsequent film of the same title that uh, starred Sean Connery uh, and Donald Sutherland as two of the main characters in this story. So the Edwin Fox, in carrying um, convicts from the UK to, to Western Australia... Um, we're carrying everyday criminals, but also some some really um, some really exceptionally famous criminals of the time that, that caught the, the the attention of the of the general public.
2: Wow, some pretty epic stories there, Adrian. Is there anything you'd like to add?
3: No, no, that uh, Boyd got it all for sure.
2: Very much so. Um, thinking about the end of that journey, uh, the very very long journey from Britain to Australia. Obviously, when these convicts turn up and of course the guards turn up in Australia. Um it's not like there aren't people there already. And this was something that was quite interesting to discuss in this book. So could you maybe tell us a bit about what parallels we might see between how the British Empire sort of thought about and treated those convicts as well as the people that I mean were not their district jurisdiction at all, right? The aboriginals. Um, And what links we might see in that sense? Perhaps Boyd, you could keep us going on the Australia front?
1: Sure. I mean, I think the first thing to is to recognize is that the the settlement of Western Australia, which began as the Swan Colony, Swan River Colony, um, was actually didn't begin as a penal colony. It started off as a, um, it was never intended to be a penal colony. It started off as a free colony. uh, And there was efforts to recruit settlers um, there throughout the 1830s. Um, But those efforts Uh, Largely failed. Um, Western Australia is very remote. Uh, It's far from major shipping channels. um, And many people were not uh, willing or interested in in uprooting their lives to settle there. Um, And then also uh, very few uh, ships of trade were coming there to either uh, bring... Supplies for the settlers, or to purchase any sort of raw materials or 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 finished materials that the settlers might might produce, um, and so in the in the eighteen forties, the the worthies of this colony um, devised the scheme that if they would uh, open themselves up to penal uh, to, to 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 convicts to the settlement of convicts um, and the housing and warehousing of of convict and convict and the use of convict labor at the colony, then they would be able to expand and grow. Uh, their settlement and expand and grow the colony itself, which is another example of the ways in which globalization was driven by the periphery, as much if not more so by the, than by the core. Um, now, of course, the expansion of Western of, of Western Australia and, and the British colony there was was at the expense of the local um, Aboriginal people, and this is a story of tremendous um, of tremendous violence and and tremendous exploitation, um, and there are obviously the stories of warfare and violence um, that uh, characterize early colonization, the, the establishment of, of, of this, of the colony there. But in many ways, especially once the penal colony got established, um, much of this uh, settler violence towards the lo- local Nungar people um, was done through the, through, the, through the system of laws and the penal colony. Um, and so one of the stories we tell is the ways in which on the Edwin Fox's final day, uh in in Fremantle which was the the port um for the colony and it was uh, about to leave on, on Christmas Eve, actually, and it was about to head off to Hong Kong. On that same day, uh, another ship um, named Preston, a schooner, uh, arrived, arrived in the harbor. And, and, and these two ships were, were alongside each other um, uh, at uh, anchor at the same time. Uh, and in many ways, they were both completing um, two sides of, 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 of two different middle passages, if you will, for, for, um, for imprisoned people. On the one hand, the Edwin Fox had just brought uh, convicts um, to to the to to the colony and everything that that meant uh, for supplies and for 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 labor and for material um, and on the other hand the Preston was bringing a, a load of Aboriginal prisoners um, to to be settled at a different prison a, a local nearby prison on the island of Rotness on the on Rotness Island um, but that this this uh, this uh, imprisonment and exploitation of Aboriginal people was just as essential to the expansion of the colony, um, because Aboriginal people um, they they needed to be dispossessed um, by the by the by the colonists in order to uh, access their land, and they needed to be controlled in order to to uh, to 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 use their labor uh, in the in the furthering of the of the colony um and, and, and in in the book we we, we kind of discuss the, the larger issue of aboriginal um imprisonment uh within western australia um and and, I, and one of the things that we're trying to to show and to to emphasize here is the ways in which uh various forms of colonialism worked hand in hand that um Penal colonialism and convict colonialism um, were but one side of the coin of the same coin of settler colonialism, and that if we really want to understand the ways in which um, globalization, imperialism and colonialism worked uh, hand in hand, we have to understand the ways in which both um, the production of penal colonies uh, the, the establishment of penal colonies, the expansion of penal colonies, um, as well as the, uh, the theft of land and the exploitation of Aboriginal people uh, were part of the same process. And we really see this unfolding very clearly uh, in the example of Western Australia.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail.
2: very much so. Adrian, can I come to you perhaps to help us? I think that the kind of the broader bringing together those strands is obviously incredibly important. And also understanding sort of practically what some of this was like for actual, you know, on a human level. So Adrian, what was it like to be an immigrant or settler traveling on the Edwin Fox in, for example, the 1870s?
3: Okay, well, In the 1870s, uh, the Edwin Fox made four voyages from the UK to New Zealand carrying settlers. And this was uh, part of a sort of audacious uh, assisted immigration scheme launched by the premier of New Zealand, uh, Julius Vogel. And uh, with the goal of... Significantly increasing the uh, the white population and getting the stumbling colonial economy uh, marching into high gear. Now, and because uh, these the people who traveled on these voyages traveled of their own free will. Uh, which was different from the people who traveled on our voyages of unfreedom, there's a lot more documentation available. People wrote diaries, people wrote letters. There's, uh, uh, so uh, it's much easier to get at the individual experience. So first, let me uh, say sort of some background. The, from the UK to New Zealand, the, the average length of the voyage was 96 days. So we're talking over three months. One of the Edwin Fox voyages, which was uh, uh, disrupted by an accident, took 122 days. And uh, on two of these four voyages, uh, because the Edwin Fox arrived at its port in New Zealand with uh, people who are unwell, uh, the passengers had to spend another month in quarantine before they were allowed uh, on, uh, on a quarantine island, before they were allowed into the colony proper. Now the the space that's available, and you can actually experience this yourself if you ever visit the Edwin Fox Museum, because uh, b- below decks on the ship, they've got the, I guess, shelves is really the best word for it, where, where the uh, uh, passengers slept. So the... The space available an in individual for sleeping was essentially no more than that than what we get in the economy seat on an airplane. So we've got this uh, t- tightly packed space. We've got very long uh, voyage. So the experience uh, to begin with was a regimented one. The New Zealand government, which was, which, whose agent in London was actually contracting the ships, uh, uh, it did um, sign contracts with various shipping companies, including the one that owned the Edwin Fox. And these contracts were very detailed in what the shipping company had to provide. But there, there were also New Ze- uh, government regulations regarding behavior on the ship and sort of day-to-day routines. So there was tremendous regimentation. And this was even greater in the case of single women who were traveling, because here we, of course, run into uh, classic Victorian uh, attitudes about uh, the role of women, uh, sexuality, etc., And there was a special uh, uh, off, uh, official on the ship, who known as the matron, whose job was to uh, take care of, keep an eye on, uh, police the the single women uh, on the voyage, and they they slept in a separate cabin. Uh, their cabin was towards the front of the ship, which uh, was chosen because it was furthest away from where the sailors slept. Uh, the matron had the only key to the to this uh, cabin, which was locked uh, at night time. Uh, she could refuse entry to anyone, uh, including the captain. So uh, this is sort of some of the basic conditions. Uh, and it was, I think, we can what the experience was, was a combination of boredom, misery, and wonder, and adventure. So as uh, like I said, we have diaries. Uh, on the 1878 voyage, which is the best documented, and is the one we... Uh, describe in most detail. Uh, One of the passengers, uh, a man by the name of Edward Manning, kept a diary which he concluded, the very last line, was that the voyage was 122 days of misery, anxiety, discomfort, and semi-starvation. So, uh,
2: not exactly enticing.
3: <laughs> no, not exactly enticing. I mean, I think many of us uh, sort of, you know, uh, balk at the idea of flying to New Zealand these days. But mm. uh, this was, of course, a lot, a lot more uh, uh, demanding. Uh, they there there was a lot of time when not much happened. Uh, people had to make their own entertainments. I mean, on, on some other ships, this doesn't seem to have happened on the Edwin Fox. uh, There were organized um, social activities, I guess we would say there passengers would uh, in some voyages, but again, not on the Edwin Fox uh, create put out a newspaper, a kind of, you know, what was going on on the ship. There were of course, religious services uh, on Sunday uh, and while most of the passengers were Protestants of various sorts, there were, of course, many Irish Catholics, and uh, they, uh, this being one of the major fault lines in British society at the time, the, the Catholics, of course, had separate uh, religious, uh, religious ceremonies on Sunday. They didn't, uh, they didn't have a, a clergyman to conduct them. Usually, it was conducted by one of the passengers themselves. Uh, for children, there, there, there was school. Uh, there was one of the other key figures on these ships was called the Surgeon Superintendent, and he was a, a doctor, uh, and the, the health of the passengers was his primary responsibility. But he also would uh, conduct classes for uh, for the children on ship. Uh, so there, there was a lot of boredom, people having to make up their own entertainment. There, there was misery, seasickness was a real problem, particularly. Uh, for the first few days of a voyage, then people uh, seemed to get their sea legs, as it were. Also, I, I mentioned there, there was, uh, could be moments of wonder. There were lots of new experiences. People saw uh, things like whales and albatrosses that they had never seen. Remember, the, most of these people had uh, certainly never left the, the British Isles before, and many of them might have never traveled very far from their home place. Uh, so they they're seeing new animal life when they get down to the roaring 40s. They're seeing icebergs. They're experiencing extreme, experiencing extreme heat. Uh, so it, it, it's a real uh, a mixture of things. Uh, again, some of the passenger diaries on, on this voyage, uh, uh, it, you know, convey a very, Powerfully, the uh, the wonder of, of these things, they all, as well as co- <laughs> uh, conveying the the, the 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 boredom and the misery.
2: Hmm. Very interesting and complex. Thank you for taking us through that. I'm wondering if you can. I guess kind of pick up on something that you haven't quite mentioned, but it's sort of been in the bit of the background of a few of the answers so far, Um, that obviously the Edwin Fox didn't just transport people free or otherwise, um, but also stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And that especially in remote places like Western Australia, the fact that a ship would turn up in the harbour and had stuff um, was a really, really big deal. Mm -hmm. I was fascinated to learn from the book that the Edwin Fox not only connected places by that sort of example, but also even without have ever actually having visited, you know, get things from one port, take it to another, the, the ship was involved even when it wasn't quite so direct as that. So could you tell us about kind of this aspect of increased globalization and the transportation of physical stuff?
3: of course yeah this is sort of one of i think probably certainly my favorite story i think boyd probably shares this with me and it it really uh allows us to see sort of the hidden connections and ramifications of globalization uh so in 1881 uh the edmund fox made uh, another voyage to new zealand and as part of its cargo it had a number of pianos uh Pianos made in England by a company called Brimstead. And the uh, newspapers in uh, Bluff, which is at the southernmost part of New Zealand, where the ship was going, uh, they kind of knew when the ship was supposed to arrive because they knew when it had left London. So they started advertising that coming on the Edwin Fox, Brimstead and Sons prize-winning pianos. Uh, So we started looking into this. And uh, from this one newspaper advertisement, uh, we got we discovered a number of things. So first of all, uh, the importance of the piano as a marker of domesticity uh, in the 19th century, uh, uh, particularly in the anglophone world, but not just uh, all over Western Europe, and also uh, in a set in a colonial setting uh, like like New Zealand as a marker of European or more precisely British civilization. And importing pianos, having a piano, uh, was part of recreating an English society which uh, in New Zealand, which is what most of these uh, settlers wanted to do. Now, the piano was also an item of mass consumption at this time with global implications. So, uh, there were essentially as two key ingredients uh, for pianos. One is wood and the other is ivory. And everyone knows ivory comes from elephant tusks. And the massive expansion in piano production and piano consumption in the second half of the 19th century led to a massive expansion in the hunting of elephants in Africa. And it led to the slaughter of Uh, elephants along and uh, almost virtual elimination of the elephant herds uh, along or near the east coast of Africa and also south of the Zambezi River and forced the um, uh, ivory hunters to send their caravans further and further inland. And as the trade expanded, uh, they needed more porters because elephant tusks were carried all the way on the shoulders of Individual men and many of these porters were uh, were slaves who themselves were sold once they uh, arrived at the uh, at Dar es Salaam, which was the uh, terminus for the trade. Now, uh, with the disappearance excuse me with the disappearance of the uh, uh, or certainly significant reduction in the elephant herds in uh, eastern and central Africa. Uh, These animals, which consume massive amounts of uh, plant life per day, uh, led to a substantial increase uh, in the area covered by brush brush and woodland, which was a welcoming environment for the tsetse fly. And the expansion of uh, the tsetse fly breeding grounds and the tsetse fly population led to the uh, spread of a... Very serious illness, which uh, the CC uh, for which the C. fly is the vector, uh, is sleeping sickness. and this led literally to uncounted deaths. So I mean there are estimates as to how many people how many Africans died of, of sleeping sickness in the late 19th, early 20th century. No one's sure, but it's, it's likely to be in the millions. So the Edwin thought so here we can move from a newspaper advertisement in a small town in southern New Zealand talking about pianos coming on the Edwin Fox, to unraveling all these uh, uh, implications of uh, globalization. Uh, And I guess this is another uh, uh, virtue of this sort of micro-historical approach.
2: Very much so. Um, I admit that's also perhaps my favorite story from the book, Um, but I realized that I couldn't just write down on my notes, ask them about the pianos. (laughs) So... Thank you for explaining that one to us. Um, As we continue, I'd love to pick up on something, Boyd, I think you mentioned earlier on, um, when we talked about the Edwin Fox being built sort of on the older model um, and not necessarily looking forward. I think it's time to kind of move into that. How did the rise of steamships, which as you already told us at the beginning, were very much on the horizon when the Edwin Fox was built and so are kind of there this whole time. How did this change where the Edwin Fox went? What sorts of things it was transporting? Can you take us through this? Sure.
1: Um, yeah. So, you know, a lot. Of, if you notice, a lot of the voyages we've been discussing so far are very long distance voyages. Um, settlers from uh, the UK to New Zealand, convicts from the UK to Western Australia, indentured labor from China to Cuba. Um, you know, these, these voyages uh, exceeded the, the, the limits and the ability of steamships. Uh, Steamships require, of course, regular uh, supply of coal or, or other sort of combustible materials to, to feed their engines, which require coaling stations and ports uh, and frequent stops. Um, and so for, you know, throughout this period of time, the Edwin Fox took advantage of its uh, competitive uh, niche market uh, advantage that it had over steam, which was to cover these, these, these massive distances. Um, now, Going back in time a little bit, we were talking about the settler voyages of the 1870s. Um, but in the 1860s, uh, there was a uh, a major sh- uh, shift in in the global economy that result that was the result of the American Civil War, uh, and that was that uh, almost overnight, um, the largest single supplier of cotton in the world, the the United States, uh, was no longer providing that cotton, and this had. Uh, huge impacts on the uh, industrial economies especially of, of Europe which sent uh merchants and traders and in- industrialists uh seeking out a new supply of cotton and really the only uh the the the, the most likely and promising uh, new source of cotton was was India um and so the Edwin Fox um jumps onto this uh this this hunt for for cotton in in India as well and 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 in the 1860s it it starts uh Frequently, frequent, frequently going to to India. Now, um, unfortunately, there was both a lot of competition that the that the Evan Fox was facing from other conventional um, sail ships, um, as well as um, as well as steam ships. Um, and the Evan Fox was never particularly successful in finding and securing cotton. It did get a few loads of cotton, but um, it, it wasn't. It, it, more often than not, it was left looking for uh, for cotton rather than actually finding any. Um, so what it did instead was, when it was in India, it participated in what uh, historians call the, the country trade, which is the movement of goods from minor ports and smaller smaller uh, uh, port towns. Uh, to large port towns, where they would then be gathered together and placed, usually uh, on steamships for transportation um, back to back to the UK or to to Europe and other places like that. Um, and so the the Edwin Fox throughout this period in the 1860s finds itself um, rather than doing these long distance voyages between uh, one side of the planet to the other, uh, of doing lots of really small uh, voyages between minor ports uh, to major ports uh, as an essential cog in this global this uh, uh, system of global trade um, that was beginning to emerge as a result of, of steamships. Now, when it was participating in this local trade, um, margins were, were very small and uh, costs had to be kept in constant um, control. And uh, one of the largest uh, costs that uh, the owners of the Open Fox were encountering was the rather large crew that was necessary in order to man a fully square rigged sailing ship. Um, which you know usually required, like uh, as we said, between forty and fifty crewmen to, to, to operate. Um, the, uh, so in the in the 18, um, uh, 1867, I believe it was, uh, the Edwin Fox changed its rigging. Um, from being a uh, square rigged uh, fully rigged uh, ship to a bark um, and this is a seemingly a minor change we actually have a a a graph or a, a diagram of of the transition uh, and what it means essentially uh it's changing the the the, the aft uh mass uh from be- from being square rigged to being a land team. um it seemingly appears to be a minor change in in the rigging of a ship, but the result is a massive reduction in the number of um, sailors needed to operate the ship. Um, And with, 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 with the, in its bark um, format, the Edwin Fox could be sailed with half or even less of the crew members. Um, And it did experience a a modest reduction in its overall speed. Um, But certainly from the perspective of the owners, this was uh, well compensated by the lower costs of the, of the uh of the sailors um so this is one of the major ways in which uh the edwin fox begins to adjust itself to the to the new changing economy um that steam is bringing bringing in it participates in uh nearly exclusively long distant voyages uh in the 1870s to 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 new zealand in particular uh and when it is operating in, um, the, in the India trade, um, it's no longer playing the star role as the, the ship that, that, that transports the goods from the major ports back to London, but it's playing this subs, sub uh, subs, uh, uh, this supporting role, uh, in, in, in the local economy.
2: Wow. Thank you for taking us through that kind of number of changes there. It's really interesting to be reminded that you know as much as the shiny new tech is what gets the headlines um that's not the only thing that's happening in any technological change again as evidenced by our wonderfully average Edwin Fox um and this in fact continues so Adrian I'd love to go right back to where we started where you found the Edwin Fox in New Zealand obviously at some point this ship stops sailing but doesn't stop being part of the processes of globalization. What was it up to even when it wasn't moving around?
3: Okay, yes, this, this ship uh, did any number of things. So in 18, it, uh, the Evan Fox returns from a voyage uh, in 1883 to London, and it's now 30 years old. It's still got its... Uh, a1 rating from Lloyd's, which means it's, it's, you know, it's still still very seaworthy. But the company that owned it decided that it really wasn't uh, paying anymore, so it tried to sell it. And it was on sale for a couple of years, and no, no buyers. So in 1885, they sent it down to New Zealand. But this time, it was carrying a very special cargo. In 1882, the first shipment of frozen lamb from New Zealand to the United Kingdom had taken place, first successful one. And this was absolutely key moment in the development of the New Zealand economy. Uh, as against, you know, certain, certainly those of us of a certain age, remember sort of New Zealand lamb as being so, you know, so central to, uh, uh, uh in Britain and elsewhere. So, uh, This voyage takes place in 1882. And then what the Edwin Fox is carrying in 1885 is a refrigeration unit in pieces down in the hull. And then when it arrives in New Zealand, they tie it up to dock, start dismantling the mass and other things, and then set up the refrigeration unit on the ship's deck. And the Edwin Fox uh, from 1885 until 1899 would be, a floating refrigeration unit. So the land, it would uh, be tied up at various ports in New Zealand, moved around a little bit. Uh, in 1897, it was moved to Pickman, uh where it has remained ever since. And it worked as a refrigeration unit until 1899. And the, the uh, lamb uh, carcasses would be uh, brought down uh, to the docks of wherever it was, uh, by train usually. Uh, and then f- frozen on the Edwin Fox and then transferred onto another ship, uh, usually a steamship now, which would take the lamb uh, to, to the UK. In 1899, uh, the company that owned the Edwin Fox had uh, b- uh, built a, um, a land-based uh, refrigeration plant. So the, it, the Edwin Fox was no longer needed. Also, its, its freezing equipment was kind of old-fashioned. And it was used uh, first as a worker's dormitory until it was sort of condemned. And then starting in 1905, it was used to store coal. And it was used to store coal until 1953. So in that year, exactly 100 years after it had been built, uh, it was towed out into the middle of Picton Bay and just dumped. (laughs) There was no longer any use for it. And
2: wow.
3: and it stayed there. Uh, uh, people scavenging whatever they could off it, uh, uh, you know, good usable pieces of teak, any bits of metal that were left, what have you. But there it was, uh, abandoned in the bay uh, for quite a few years.
2: Boyd, what happened next? Where's, Where's the Edwin, Edwin Fox now? now?
1: <laughs> well, so uh, picking up from the 1850s, uh, the the Hulk just sort of remained and kind of moldered in place, but, but local uh, historical uh, uh, organizations began to take notice and to recognize that they, in fact, had a, a very unique um, ship on their hands. Um, and uh, in 1965, uh, the Edwin Fox Restoration Society was created, um, and it purchased the ship's uh, remains for uh, one shilling, which is about $1.30 uh, today. Um, and then a, a series of efforts began over the next decade, or uh, over the next couple of decades, to uh, initially try to restore the ship. There was uh, an idea that that this hull could be lovingly restored and brought back to its glory day as a as a full. Um, uh, rigged and uh, 3 masted sailing ship, um, but of course this was a very prohibitively expensive undertaking. And eventually, by the by the by the late 1980s and early 1990s, the the, the goals of um, the Edwin Fox Society had shifted from um, a restoration project to a preservation project. Um, and beginning in the uh, 18, I mean, sorry, in the 1990s, um, the there was a, a purpose-built uh, dry dock. Um, that was uh, made for the ship, um, and in 1999, um, the remains of the ship were towed to this dry dock, which is um, in Picton, uh, New Zealand, on the South Island. Um, and if you, uh, if any of our listeners um, ever travel by ferry from Wellington to the South Island, um, this is where the ferry uh, will take you. So it's a major, uh, it's a major transit spot uh, between the North and South Island. Um, there, it was put into dry dock. It was. Um, stabilized and preserved. Uh, it has a, a nice um, cover over the top of it and uh, a, a wonderful museum um, was built to, to, to interpret the, the ship and to present it to uh, school children, to tourist groups, to the general public, um, where it remains today. Um, and it, and uh, we're happy to say that the uh, that attendance continues to grow uh, in the post COVID uh, time, uh, and that the uh, Edwin Fox Museum is is a is a thriving place. Um, and we would encourage anyone who's interested in in the history in, in the history that we've been discussing to to make sure to stop by Picton on their uh, on their next time that they're in New Zealand.
2: Wonderful. now Now that you've both so helpfully taken us from literally the very beginning the creation of this ship all the way up to the present day before we finish i'm wondering if i could ask you both to sort of lift the curtain a little bit take us behind the scenes of writing this book because clearly there's a lot of material and the ship is everywhere doing all sorts of things um but of course there are some pretty clear challenges to writing a book like this as well. So uh, perhaps Adrian, you could start us off, maybe discussing some of those.
3: Okay, yes, sure. It is. This was a a much more compl- complicated and difficult book to uh, come to grips with than anything I'd done before, because you know, as we've been explaining to you, it, the the ship's story took it pretty much all over the world, uh, which meant that. There are going to be sources all over the world. And we conducted um, research uh, in London, uh, in Perth, Western Australia, in Wellington, New Zealand, in Picton, New Zealand, and believe it or not, in St. John's, Newfoundland, because uh, Memorial University there has the largest collection of, uh, or largest archive for the British merchant marine in the 19th century. So... uh, it's complicated. It's expensive. Uh, we were fortunate, uh, and uh, uh, we both want to uh, thank the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, which gave us the grant to uh, conduct this research. And uh, SSHRC uh, is still open to uh, funding projects that you know look well beyond the borders of our country, which is a very good thing. Uh, in addition, so we did that kind of research, but. I think the, the book, certainly as it is now, would not have been possible 30 years ago uh, because a lot of our research depended on, uh, you know, things that are digitized. So first of all, that both Australia and New Zealand have amazing uh, digitized newspaper collections, uh, word searchable, uh, papers passed for New Zealand trove for Australia you just punched in Edward and fox <laughs> and up came all the references uh you know uh, including the advertisements like the one I referred to for the uh, the piano ad we also uh, made a lot of use of ancestry.com because once we had um, passenger lists say for the uh, uh, settler voyages New Zealand, and also to a certain extent for the um, convict voyage to Western Australia, we could find out a lot about these people by uh, through Ancestry.com, and even uh, in a couple of cases make contact with descendants who then provided us with uh, information uh, that was not uh, not available elsewhere. One of the images in the book is a photograph of Joseph Ferguson, who is the longest serving captain of the Edwin Fox, which he had taken in, in Hong Kong, and it was courtesy of uh, one of his descendants whom we found on ancestry, Ancestry.com, Marika Steubendale, that we, we have that photograph. So it's a combination of, kind of you know, traditional archival research and uh, uh, today's uh, digital research.
2: Cool, boy. Is there anything you'd like to add?
1: Oh, uh, I uh, would. I just would uh, would echo everything that Adrian said, and and maybe add just one or one or two other things. I mean, another thing that uh, in the digital uh, side of doing the research for this project, um, uh, it's kind of a funny thing, but the fact that the, the ship was called the Edwin Fox actually was to our advantage. It's a it's a rather unusual name. Uh, if the, if the ship had been called uh, Progress. <laughs> or perseverance <laughs> it would have been a much more difficult um, undertaking to, to to do um and then also on that same line uh the Edwin Fox museum was also an incredible resource uh for us um you know much of the research we did uh separately and and in different archives but uh, the Edwin Fox Museum and and their staff was able to constantly provide us with additional things that we had been able to find. And but it was actually a very dialogical process between between us because we also provided them with a bunch of materials that we had found uh, and we added to their collection um, and were even able to uh, unravel some mysteries that they had been struggling with. So, for example, the identity of the man for whom the Edwin Fox is named after. Um, so uh, that was a, an essential uh very essential archive, and it was really great to be able to give back. And and we and we continue to work with with the the staff there at the uh, Edwin Fox Museum. And then I guess the, the last thing I would add is is just a plug that Adrian and I I know that Adrian and I are both very passionate about um, is the importance of of languages and, and foreign languages to the to doing global history of this kind. Um, you know, in this project, it was very helpful that both Adrian and I can do research in Spanish uh, for the Cuban chapter. Um, and you know, in general, uh, whenever undertaking global history, we think that it's really important that uh, that, that students and 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 global historians um, have uh, the ability to work in multiple languages. If they, if we really want to uh, do global history,
2: wonderful. I think that's a very helpful note um, to conclude that kind of behind the scenes bit on, leaving me only with my final question, um, which is perhaps even more unfair than when I usually ask it, um, as literally we're recording this just before the book actually comes out. Um, But now that you have created this, you have gone through all of the archives and put this together. um, Is there anything each of you might be working on next, whether or not it's a book that you'd like our audience to be aware of?
1: Adrian, you want to go first?
3: Okay, sure. Uh, well, I'm actually working on, on two things. One is a, a return to my Spanish history roots, and the other is sort of a spin off from this project. So, the, the Spain related project is something that uh, uh, I've been working on with a, a team of colleagues uh, from Spain, uh, the UK uh, for a number of, in the United States for a number of years, uh, in which we launched last September, but is ongoing as, as a project, which is a, a virtual museum of the Spanish Civil War. And I won't go into any of the backstory, but to say it is the only museum in the world of any kind uh, devoted to the Spanish Civil War. And we're just taking, undertaking a major expansion. The project, which is a sort of spin-off from the Edwin Fox, is I uh, uh, was asked by a couple of colleagues to uh, join a project of theirs on the history of, of the globalization of wine in, between about 1860 and 1940. And I stumbled across a... Uh, a Spaniard who went to New Zealand in the 1860s and is one of the uh, founders, is considered one of the, uh, the founders of the New Zealand wine industry and uh, a man who uh, whose life and career in New Zealand uh, were particularly fascinating. So I'm uh, just finishing up a, a, a paper about him.
1: Um, and, uh, well, so in, in addition to <laughs> finishing this book, um, I'm also just coming off of a five-year stint as the editor and co-editor of the Journal of the Guild Age and Progressive Era, um, and being graduate director <laughs> of our program here at York. So uh, I'm on sabbatical, and I'm um, I'm resting a bit right now. Mm, um, and- nice. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out exactly what's next. But um, what's currently inspiring me is um, I'm working on a project on the history of U.S. and Okinawan relations. Um, in particular, right now, I'm looking at a and thinking about uh, the possibilities of writing a book about Um, A really amazing moment in the 1850s um, that involves Matthew Perry and his famous uh, so-called opening of Japan through gunboat diplomacy. Um, But uh, a a lesser known story about that, uh, about that larger story is um, the arrival of Perry in Okinawa. Um, and uh, the, the kind of the ways in which not just the United States, but uh, a Russian mission, um, a uh, a British um, missionary organization, a French mission, all were converging on the Ryukyu Islands between Taiwan and Japan uh, in the 1850s and trying to think about this moment. Uh, in global history, um, and thinking about the ways in which Okinawa was, uh, for this decade, kind of the island at the center of the world, uh, and that's that's uh, the the project that I'm currently um, working on. Wow!
2: Well, both of you have very interesting things coming up, um, but of course, first there is the full launch of the book we've been discussing, again titled "The Edwin Fox: How an Ordinary Sailing Ship Connected the World in the Age of Globalization," published by the University of North Carolina Press. Boyd and Adrian, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
3: Thank you, Miranda.
1: Thank you.